0: hello and welcome to another edition of sunday dive i'm katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the third sunday of easter april 18th 2021 coming to the easter account of the gospel of luke we see jesus appearing in his risen glory for the third time the disciples are dismayed by this appearance but jesus making an offer of peace provides ample evidence to bolster their faith in his resurrection Rich in parallels with Luke's road to Emmaus story, we discover a God in our gospel who condescends to our human needs and who himself accomplishes our perfecting should we only be docile to him. Thanks so much for joining us once more. Uh, I have to begin with a very quick apology because this episode is a couple days late. I'm very sorry about that. Um, uh, it's going to drop, I think on Thursday, I'm recording it on Wednesday. I was, uh, home in California over the weekend, uh, for my grandma's funeral. So if you think of it and want to say a prayer for the repose of the soul of my grandma, her name was Marilyn, um, that would mean a lot to me, um, had, uh, Great visit with a bunch of my aunts and uncles and uh, uh, cousins and my immediate family, and it was good. So I'm back, and back at the microphone. And today we are diving into our readings um, for the third Sunday of Easter, and our readings today come from the Gospel of Luke, actually. So we're in the cycle where we read through Mark. We were reading a fair amount from John um, when it came to Triduum and Easter, and now we have a little cameo from Luke. So, our gospel today is from Luke chapter 24, verses 35 through 48. Let's read it together. And as usual, I am reading from the Revised Standard Version. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and supposed that they had saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do questionings rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Luke chapter 24 verses 35 through 48, before we get into the nitty gritty of our readings together, let's talk about a little bit of the context. So this is, this account for us, this appearance of our Lord is the third appearance of the risen Christ in the gospel of Luke. The first appearance is implied, okay? So at Luke 24, 34, which is just actually the verse right before our gospel picks up. Um, we're told that Peter has seen the Lord. Okay, so implication that Jesus has appeared to Peter. And the second appearance is the appearance on the road to Emmaus. And now, my, I guess, technically speaking, we don't know which came first. Uh, but we have the appearance on the road to Emmaus. And then thirdly, we have the appearance here in our gospel. Okay, so this is the third time in the gospel of Luke since Jesus's resurrection that he has appeared to his followers. And this appearance account here immediately follows his appearance to the two on the road to Emmaus. And it has clear parallels with the episode of The Road to Emmaus. So for example, in The Road to Emmaus, we have Jesus appearing, but uh, the disciples not comprehending that it is Jesus. In a similar way here in our gospel, we have Jesus appearing and sure they recognize that it's Jesus, unlike the disciples on The Road to Emmaus, but there's still like a lack of comprehension. there incredulous about Jesus's appearance. And they think that he is uh, perhaps a ghost, a spirit, right? So Jesus's appearance is not initially comprehended on the road to Emmaus. Jesus provides instruction, including instruction in scripture. Uh, He he provides uh, evidently a lot of instruction in scripture. Jesus does the same thing here. He instructs them instructs them to investigate him. And he also does a little bit of instructing them on how he fulfills the scriptures like he did on the road to Emmaus. Okay. So those, those parallels as well. In both stories, there's also eating that takes place, right? In the road to Emmaus account, the disciples eventually recognize Je- recognize Jesus in the breaking of the bread. And in this account, they, uh, in many ways, recognize Jesus, if you will, when he eats. And we'll get into that in more detail. How Jesus is eating helps them to, quote unquote, recognize Jesus. Or perhaps you might say, believe that it's actually him. And then finally, uh, in both episodes of The Road to Emmaus and then the appearance here in our gospel, uh, Jesus makes a supernatural departure. You probably remember from the story of The Road to Emmaus that as soon as they recognize him, he disappears from their midst. Now, this detail is not actually contained in uh, the verses that make up our gospel. But if you kept reading past where our gospel ends at verse 48 to uh, three verses later at verse 51, you would get to the miraculous ascension of Jesus into heaven. And those are kind of like coupled together almost. Now, we understand from the other gospels that Jesus actually remained with the disciples for a time, but for the sake of the st- the telling of Luke's story, he kind of conflates the two, or at least omits that time period. Nevertheless, uh, Jesus miraculously, supernaturally departs from them in our episode here, as well as in the episode of The Road to Emmaus. So we have those parallels that kind of show us that these these two episodes are related. And again, the Road to Emmaus story directly precedes what makes up our gospel here today. And so on the third Sunday of Easter last year, we read the Road to Emmaus story. This year, the gospel of Luke picks up here on the third Sunday of Easter, uh, pretty much right where we left off last year on the third Sunday of Easter. So we're picking that up and we see that these two episodes are very related and almost form a kind of cohesive whole. With that being said, with that kind of context in mind, let's just dive into the gospel and and, uh, comb through it and find the beautiful details that are always hidden for us in scripture. So we have this introduction at verse 35 that alludes to the road to Emmaus story. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread, as they were saying this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you. That is easy to gloss over, but something that is very much worth leaning into. Peace be with you. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples I know I've said this in previous podcasts, perhaps even on, you know, the third Sunday of Easter last year, that when Jesus appears to his disciples after the resurrection, which is after his passion, which is after he has been abandoned by all but one of his 12 closest followers you might surmise that there might have been some concern on the part of his disciples, how Jesus might react to them. Like on, in the best case scenario, he would just reprimand them perhaps because they did, they did abandon him in his moment of need. And that's problematic, uh, not just on a level of friendship, but, Uh, We can understand how problematic that is when we realize that we too abandon our Lord in his time of need. We do this all the time when he makes uh, uh, an ask of us, whether it's, you know, in the moral life or in the spiritual life, whether it's uh, a desire for us to grow in virtue or in uh, in 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 human uh, perfection, we deny him that opportunity many times, and we quote unquote abandon him. But just as Jesus is uh, very generous and merciful and understanding to us, he is so very generous and merciful and understanding of the disciples. And so what does he do? Does he wish ill upon them? Does he reprimand them? No, what's the first thing he says to them? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. And I actually want to kind of dive deeper into this idea of peace, because um, we can gloss over it to the extent that we don't recognize how Jesus's gift of peace actually has a very plays a very important role in our own spiritual life. So, um, I have here in front of me one of my all time favorite books, and those of you who follow me can probably guess who the author is. <laughs> Father Jacques Philippe has a beautiful book on peace called Searching for and Maintaining Peace. And in this book, Father Philippe makes the case that peace is a fundamental key to growth in holiness. Peace is a fundamental key to growth in holiness. He speaks so beautifully that I'm just gonna let him speak for himself. These are on the first pages of his book, Searching for and Maintaining Peace. Father Jacques Philippe says, "'Apart from me, you can do nothing,' Jesus said. He did not say you can't do much, but you can do nothing. It is essential that we be persuaded of this truth. We often have to experience failures, trials and humiliations permitted by God before this truth imposes itself on us, not only on an intellectual level but as an experience of our entire being. God would spare us if he could all these trials, but they are necessary in order that we should be convinced of our complete powerlessness to do good by ourselves. If we take seriously the words cited above from the gospel of St. John, then we understand that the fundamental problem of our spiritual life becomes this. How can I let Jesus act in me? How can I permit the grace of God to freely operate in my life? Pause there for a second because I have more that I want to read, but I just want to sum up what he, the, the case that he's making so far. So he's laying out a case how peace is a fundamental key to growth and holiness. He quotes John 15, 5, which says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And what Father Philippe is saying is that if we take Jesus at his word, which we always should do because he is the word, right? (laughs) Uh, Apart from him, it is true. We can do nothing. We can't even grow in holiness apart from God. Nothing. We can do nothing. So as, as Father Philippe says himself, we then begin to understand that the fundamental problem of our spiritual life is how can I let Jesus act in me? Because apart from him, I can do nothing. In other words, all that is good in me comes from the action of God. So how can I let Jesus act in me? How can I permit the grace of God to freely operate in my life? He continues, to permit the grace of God to act in us and to produce in us with the cooperation, of course, of our will, our intelligence, and our capabilities, all those good works for which God prepared us beforehand, it is of greatest importance that we strive to acquire and maintain interior peace, the peace of our hearts. He goes on to use an analogy. He says, consider the surface of a lake above which the sun is shining. If the surface of the lake is peaceful and tranquil, the sun will be reflected in this lake, and the more pe- peaceful the lake, the more perfectly will it be reflected. If on the contrary, the surface of the lake is agitated, undulating, then the image of the sun cannot be reflected in it. It is a little bit like this with regard to our soul in relationship to God. God the more our soul is peaceful and tranquil, the more God is reflected in it, the more his image expresses itself in us, the more his grace acts through us. On the other hand, if our soul is agitated and troubled, the grace of God is able to act only with much greater difficulty. All the good that we can do is a reflection of the essential good, which is God the more our soul is peaceful, balanced, and surrendered, the more this good communicates itself to us and to others through us. Beautiful, beautiful idea. Okay, so Jesus gives peace. Uh, He utters, the first words he utters to them um, when, when he appears to the 12 after his resurrection, peace be with you is not only an affirmation that our God is a merciful God, a loving God, an understanding God, but it's this beautiful idea that recognizing that apart from him, we can do nothing, that what we need to dispose ourselves to God, to allow him to work in us, to perfect us, to make us holy, is peace. And so Jesus grants that peace to us. And our I think Father Philippe would make the case that Our only job is to then maintain this disposition of peace because that disposition of peace allows God then to work in us. It's this notion of docility, allowing God to move in us because only his moving in us can cause us to be holy, can cause us to be perfected. And so we should have a bias towards peace. If we want to talk about how to be efficient in growing in holiness, (laughs) which is uh, kind of an awkward, those are two awkward words to kind of put in the same sentence, holiness and efficiency, um, because, uh, you know, I think our... Our desire for efficiency can sometimes actually get in the way of our holiness. This could be the topic of an entirely different podcast, but since I went here for a second, let me explain. Uh, Sometimes, and Father Philippe talks about this idea as well in his book "Searching for and Maintaining Peace." We become so attached to the idea of our holiness, attached to the desire for holiness, attached to the quote-unquote need for holiness, that we grow frustrated by our lack of holiness, and then we lose our peace. And then we grow inefficient in growing in holiness. So sometimes our human idea of efficiency actually makes us inefficient in growing in holiness. So then let's ask ourselves, how do we have like divine efficiency, if you will, versus like this human efficiency where we just want sainthood now, right now, Lord? How do we have divine efficiency? By having a bias for peace, like almost deciding that if there's one thing I'm going to do today it's going to be to make sure that I never lose my peace because so long as I never lose my peace our lord can work through me and work in me even in in even in the midst of mistakes and sinfulness and suffering if I am docile peaceful that uh, calm lake i can reflect the goodness of God. Beautiful, beautiful idea that's extremely relevant for the nitty gritty of our spiritual life. And so think of that when you find yourself at mass and you hear these words uttered. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. This is the gift he wants to give us. The gift of uh, of surrender and the gift of of docility and the gift of holiness, which comes from Uh, a peaceful heart. Let's continue. Verse 37, but they were startled and frightened and supposed that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do questionings rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. All right. So they're startled and frightened. And what do they suppose? They suppose that they have seen a spirit. The Greek word here is pneuma. Uh, in in our manuscript here, in some other manuscripts of the Gospel of John, it has the Greek word phantasma. And uh we get that's where we get the word um uh like phantom or phantasm, right? Um, I bring that up because if we go to Matthew chapter 14 verse 26, we have this uh Greek word phantasma. Uh and it is translated ghost. This is the uh this is the the story in which uh, Jesus walks out to them on the water and they're freaking out and they think they're seeing a ghost. And then Jesus calls to them and they recognize him. And then Peter makes that beautiful statement like, uh, if it is you, Lord, um, bid me come to thee. And Jesus does bid him to walk on the water. But I, I bring that up so that we can have a, a more robust understanding perhaps of what the disciples are thinking there. Because, you know, we could see how if you're out on a boat and it's after dark and it's kind of stormy and all of a sudden we see a person walking on the water towards us, I would think it's a ghost too. That would definitely be my first thought. And so I, uh, I bring that up because I think we've gotten so used to the idea of Jesus being risen, of Jesus's resurrection being a reality that it's hard for ourselves to, it's hard for us to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. As one biblical scholar uh, points out in one of the commentaries I pulled much of this podcast from, um, the, the resurrection was not a wish fulfillment. Like we, uh, as Christians, and then even scholars have come to kind of argue, or at least subconsciously believe that Jesus being resurrected from the dead was a wish fulfillment. Like as soon as Jesus had died, the disciples were like wishing that he would be raised from the dead. That was not on their radar. And uh, I think there's good evidence for that throughout the gospels when Jesus makes predictions of his passion and alludes to his resurrection and the disciples just don't get it. So they were not expecting this. And so we can understand why they were startled, why they were frightened, and why they supposed that they were seeing a pneuma, a spirit, right? But how does Jesus respond? With gentleness and with kindness. Why are you troubled? Why do questionings rise in your hearts? So the disciples are troubled. Jesus himself points it out. Interestingly, again, we can turn to the Greek and we can discover that this is the same word in Greek that also occurs earlier in Luke, at Luke chapter one, verses 12, and then also at verse 29. And it's applied to Zachariah first, and then it's actually applied to Our Lady. I bring this up, I draw this uh, this uh, connection because uh, we don't want to fault the disciples for being troubled. And if uh our lady herself was troubled or perhaps another uh translation is perplexed, confused, uh certainly we cannot fault her because she was perfectly docile to the holy spirit and open to the will of god. And so it's not so much the fact of being troubled that's important but it's the response to that troubledness remember Zachariah doesn't necessarily respond with an act of faith and so he is uh he's rendered mute for the duration of of uh John the Baptist's um or or I should say his wife Elizabeth's pregnancy Mary on the other hand our lady she responds with an act of faith and so The fact that she is troubled is not problematic. And so what our Lord, the implication is that what our Lord wants, not only from us, but also from the disciples here in our gospel is a response of faith. He's not desiring that they not be troubled, perplexed, confused, but that that not prevent them from believing. This is an important point, especially in our culture. We can look again at, uh, first and foremost, Our Lady, because she had, she responded with an act of faith. Um, She didn't know all the details, but she trusted in God. How many times do we refuse to believe something or make a full assent to God because uh, we don't have all the facts, or because the revelation provided in scripture doesn't answer all of our questions to a T. In other words, it brings in a certain level of doubt still. Uh, But as I like to point out to people, there are are dozens of things which we believe that we also don't know 100% for certain. For example, that the earth is round. Um, that the sun will come up tomorrow. Now I know some of you are going, oh, no, I know that. And I know that there are there's real evidence for all of these things, but we can get into a philosophical discussion about how do you actually 100% know something? And is it even possible to know something without any level of uncertainty, without any possibility of semblance of doubt? All you have to read is... Um, is the Enlightenment philosophers to discover that it's quite easy to poke holes in in, uh, the idea of knowledge, but we still have to go through life. And so we go through life believing things, even if we don't 100% know them. This is a little bit of a tangent to say that If we do that in daily life, then we should also be willing to to do that with God. We should be willing to make an act of faith, even if we are troubled, perplexed, confused. Because just as we believe the things that uh, people tell us who we trust, God is someone to be trusted. And so we should believe the things that he tells us. So it's not the fact that the disciples are troubled that's problematic. Um, What could be problematic is how they choose to respond to that troubledness. Interestingly enough, this idea of troubledness also creates a sort of bookends in Luke's gospel. So we brought up that this Greek word occurs in Luke chapter one, verses 12 and 29, and what is uh, what is the cause of troubledness at the beginning of Luke's gospel? This idea of the incarnation of God becoming man. You can understand how that would be troubling, perplexing, confusing, God becoming man. But then here at the end of Luke's gospel, we have the bookend of this idea of troubledness. And what are we troubled about now? We're troubled about the idea of the resurrection, the second great folly of Christianity. If the first great folly of Christianity is that God becomes man, then the second great folly of Christianity is that God was dead and now he is alive again. God was dead and now he is alive again. And it is a folly, my friends, but it's a beautiful folly. And God loves to employ follies to, to, to show us his love for us. Why do questionings rise in your hearts? Another translation of that Greek word, which we hear render questionings is doubts. Why do doubts rise in your hearts? Well, I think it's a bit of a rhetorical question. You can understand Jesus was dead and now he is standing before them evidently alive again. So to clear up their perplex. To clear up their confusion, their troubledness, their questionings, their doubts, Jesus offers three sort of quote-unquote explanations. The first we have right at the beginning, see my hands and my feet. You have this image kind of of Jesus holding up his hands to them. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. And what is the implication? That they see the holes in his hands and his feet, right? Right? So look, look for evidence to clear up your doubts. But as if that's not enough because Jesus does want them to believe, now he says touch me. Touch me. And the 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 Greek word uh is is translated in the NAB touch me, in the RSV it's translated handle me. And I really love that translation actually because uh it's different and it, it kind of it, kind of catches your attention as it should because this Greek word is rare. It only occurs four times in the New Testament. And one of the other times that it occurs is at the first letter of John chapter one, where it says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we saw it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life so john opens his epistle with the testimony of the resurrection and he he emphatically preaches the resurrection by saying we touched him we handled him with our hands Okay, so Jesus raises his hands to them, says, look at my hands and feet. And then he says, handle me, handle me and see. And then after they have done this, he provides the third and the final evidence, at least in this episode, of his truly being resurrected. And what evidence is that? The fact that he eats Have you anything here to eat? Why does Jesus eat? Why does Jesus eat? Well, I've already begun to answer that question by saying that it provides evidence for the resurrection. Eating is not something that a ghost does. Eating is not something that a spirit does. And so the fact that Jesus possesses in his body still the wounds of the crucifixion, And the fact that the disciples are allowed to touch, to feel, to handle him, coupled with the fact that they see him eating food and not just any food, but food that they themselves had prepared and offered to him, serves as a confirmation that this is indeed not only Jesus, but Jesus alive again, all right? The resurrected Lord. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. A spirit has not flesh and bones. This Greek word here, spirit, is the same one used previously, pneuma. and says if Jesus was reading their minds, right? Because they didn't say to him, we think you're a spirit. We're just told, Luke gives us a glimpse into their thoughts. They suppose that they saw a spirit. And so Jesus, able to read hearts and minds, says, a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. Ignatius of Antioch, Origen, and Eusebius, these are all um, early church writers. How early, pretty early. Ignatius of Antioch died in the first half of the second century. So somewhere somewhere between like 100 and 150 AD, I know that's a broad range, but we're not really sure when he passed. Um, but he lived very, uh, relatively speaking, quite close to the time of our Lord. He's also considered one of the Apostolic Fathers. Okay, who are the Apostolic Fathers? They are Ignatius of Antioch, Clement of Rome, Rome, and Polycarp of Smyrna. And these three men are important because they were disciples, they were students of the apostles themselves, okay? So they're like second generation uh, uh, priests and bishops ordained by the uh, apostles, taught by the apostles. So they're just uh, two generations, if you will, removed from Jesus, second generation Christians, you might say. So Ignatius of Antioch is one of those. Origen died somewhere around 250 AD and Eusebius died uh, somewhere around 340 AD approximately. Okay, so these are all very early Christian writers. All three of these writers, Ignatius of Antioch, Origen and Eusebius all use this phrase, flesh and bones to speak of the resurrected Lord. In fact, they use um, almost... uh, almost uh, the whole verse 39 in their writings, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. Why is that significant? Well, they use that phrase in their writings or a very close parallel of that phrase in their writing without any reference to the gospel of Luke. And if you're a scholar of the early church literature and a scholar of scripture, this is exciting for you because it likely means that verse 39 was very well known among the Christians, something that was memorized and passed down from generation to generation these words of our Lord, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. What am I, uh, what am I trying to say that, that this fact of Jesus showing his hands and his feet and this fact of him not being a spirit, but being flesh and bones and this fact of the disciples being invited to handle them was something that the early church clung to. And they passed on verbally and one to another, one generation to the next early on, as early as, you know, 100 AD, just, you know, 60, 70 years after our Lord. But probably even earlier than that, probably in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection and ascension of our Lord, this phrase, these words of Jesus were being held dear in the hearts of Christians and passed on from generation to generation such that they provided hope for the Christians, hope in the resurrection. We can continue on at, uh, at verse 40 and 41. And when he had, sh- he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, have you here have you anything here to eat? okay? And then they gave him give him a piece of fish and he takes it and eats it for them. Disbelieved for joy. Another uh, translation of this is incredulous, okay? So it's not as strong as doubted. It's like they're coming to belief, but they still are they're just mind blown about the fact that this must be Jesus, but how how is it Jesus? What does it imply it implies the resurrection. So they're incredulous and incredulous with joy. This is a beautiful, beautiful idea. Let's jump on, continue on to verse 44. Then he said to them, This is Jesus speaking. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things." At verse forty-four, which opens this this kind of clause or this whole pericope, I should say, of, of Jesus speaking to them, is very significant, um, though its significance is subtle. Jesus opens up by saying, these are my words. These are my words, which I spoke to you. Well, a handful of other times in the Old Testament, we have a similar phraseology where we read, these are the words. And when we get this phrase in the Old Testament, it often introduces divine revelation. So for example, at Exodus chapter 19, verse six, we read, These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. this is right after God has made a covenant, he has spoken a covenant with the uh, Israelite people. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 1.1, Deuteronomy in Greek means second law, okay? So the whole book of Deuteronomy is in many ways a law. And it begins, the very first words of Deuteronomy, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, okay? These are the words. And so when Jesus says, he introduces kind of his explanation, his exposition of scripture and revelation in the Old Testament and his connections with it. He begins by saying, These are my words. And in so doing, he makes a subtle connection with the old law in the Old Testament in order to say, in a subtle but profound sort of way, I am the new law. I am the new revelation. It is I. And this is further confirmed when we look at the fact that Jesus breaks open to them everything that is written in one the law of Moses, two the prophets, and three the Psalms. It's not unusual in Scripture to have the law and the prophets seen together, but it's interesting here that we have not only the law, the prophets, but also the Psalms, because these three um, these three kinds of writings make up the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay. So you may uh, perhaps have come across a book called the Tanakh. Um, Maybe if you know someone who's Jewish, they have a Tanakh in their home. What is a Tanakh? It's essentially the Old Testament. Okay, it's the Hebrew scriptures. What does Tanakh mean? Well, it's an acronym, T-N-K, Tanakh. And it stands for three words in Hebrew, T for Torah, N for Nevi'im and K for Ketuvim. The Torah is the law. The Nevi'im is the prophets. And the Ketuvim is the writings. In other words, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, okay? Because the Psalms fit into that latter category of the writings that make up the, the Hebrew scriptures, okay? So Jesus is is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all of the Hebrew scriptures. These are my words, which I spoke to you. He is the new law. While I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he continues, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer And on the third day, rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Forgiveness of sins, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. We'll end here looking at this because again, it provides another sort of bookends, but this is not a bookend. That contains the 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 Gospel of Luke. Um, it does, but it contains even more than that. It reaches not to the not only just to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, but it reaches it reaches back to the Old Testament. So let's dig into this, and again, to dig into us to dig into it, let's look at the Greek. So at verse forty-seven, Jesus speaks of forgiveness of sins and being preached, right? The forgiveness of sins being preached. In Greek, the word forgiveness, aphasis, also occurs earlier in Luke, in Luke chapter four, uh, verse 18. And the word in Greek for preached, keruso, also occurs earlier in, Greek, or in, in Luke, at Luke chapter four, verse 18 as well. What is at Luke chapter four, verse 18? Jesus is in Nazareth, He's at the synagogue in Nazareth. He stands up. He takes the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it and he begins reading from Isaiah 60. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and the opening of prisons to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is actually Isaiah 61, sorry. This is a famous uh, suffering servant passage, right? The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. In Greek, This word for proclaim and release, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. These two words, proclaim and release, are the same words that we have here in our gospel at verse 47, aphasis and keruso. And so what is going on here? Jesus opens his ministry in many ways with this idea of forgiveness and forgiveness being preached release being proclaimed. And what is he now doing? He's deputizing the 12 to continue in this mission, in this ministry. And what's fascinating about this idea and that rounds it out to be even more profound than it is on the surface is the idea of, of, the the year of the lord's favor okay so what is isaiah referring to in chapter 61 when he speaks of proclaiming the year of the lord's favor he's actually referring to something very particular and something technical in judaism he's arguably referring to the jubilee year which was the uh uh the either the 49th year or the 50th year but it was essentially like um so it's, uh, you know, seven times seven years. So that gives you 49 years, right? So it's this double seven. So it's just like covenant fulfillment and seven being the idea of like the perfect number. And so during the Jubilee year, we would have uh release of Israelite debt slaves, Okay. So the practice was in, in first century many first century cultures is that if you had debt and you could not repay the debt, you were enslaved, okay? So during the Jubilee year, the Jewish Jubilee year, which came every 49, 50 years, there's debate as to whether it was the 50th year or the 49th year where it was celebrated. Nonetheless, this idea of the seven and seven, seven sets of seven years, this Jubilee year was proclaimed, which meant release of Israelite debt slaves, so that they could return to their families and also the allowance of reclamation of ancestral lands. What is the significance of this? Well, I'll turn to the um, Catholic Bible Dictionary edited by Dr. Scott Hahn, and it says this, Christians should understand Christ as the true Jubilee. The ancient Jubilee freed servants from their bondage, restoring them to their true families and homeland. In Christ, we are freed from all that holds us in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. He restores us to our true family, the family of God, and our true homeland, heaven. So just as the Jubilee year allowed for debt slaves to be returned to their families and for ancestral lands to be returned to their ancestors, so also the new Jubilee Declared by Christ Himself in the new Jubilee, which is in many ways, which is Christ Himself, allows for us to return to our true family, the family of God, and our true homeland, heaven. Interestingly enough, every time the Jubilee year came around, it was announced on a particular feast in the Jewish liturgical calendar. This was the feast of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This was the day on which uh, the sins of all Israel were forgiven. Now, I won't go into too much detail on this because I've brought it up before. And it's a bit of a tangent, but it speaks profoundly to this idea of the Jubilee year and its, con- its connection to the Day of Atonement and the new Jubilee year and its connection to the, the final Day of Atonement, Right? So on the day of atonement, the high priest is the only day he'd go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer incense. And while he was in the Holy of Holies, a scarlet cord would be tied around the door. And year after year after year, there was this miracle of the scarlet cord in which that scarlet cord, while the high priest was in the Holy of Holies offering incense, it would miraculously turn white. And the Jewish people saw this as a sign that uh, God had indeed forgiven their sins. Uh, But ancient historians uh, and ancient literature tells us that there was a time when the scarlet cord, the miracle of the scarlet cord stopped and it no longer miraculously turned from scarlet to white. And we're told that this was about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So 40 years before that is somewhere around the year 30 AD. When this miracle of the scarlet cord, the cord turning from red to white on the day of atonement, signifying the forgiveness of sins by the Jewish sacrifice of the high priest, the prayer of the high priest, It stopped somewhere around the year 30 AD. Did something significant happen around the year 30 AD? It sure did. Our Lord mounted his cross and poured out his blood for us and celebrated a once for all day of atonement in which he forgave sin. All we need to do is accept that forgiveness and when we accept that forgiveness we take we take on the benefits of the jubilee year which no longer ends it's a perpetual jubilee year and we can take more once once more we can take back our freedom and we can take back our land we can take back our home our freedom our family and our home this is the heritage that Jesus offered us this is the great blessing of christianity This is the blessing of the cross and we should not take it for granted. Jesus, you offer us everything we need. Help us to only be docile to you, to open up our hearts to you in a disposition of peace so that Lord, you have the the welcome, the permission to work in us as you please. And we trust you that you will bring us to perfection and that you will bring us to our true family and our homeland, which is heaven. Thanks for listening.